Go. Well, some technology's working then, Barney. <laughs> you may have spotted we've had one or two gremlins this morning and a little bit of panic because we had to dust off the books. It's been delightful to see the children having to find page numbers. They've never experienced this joy of finding 931. It must be here somewhere. It was great to watch. Welcome. It's good to be here this morning. And it's good to study God's Word together. We are, turn back to Galatians uh, chapter 1. And... It's a passage I've been looking at myself for the past few weeks, actually with some of the elders, all the elders in fact. Um, we've uh, been taking Galatians as a study, uh, just for ourselves really, but uh, Galatians 1, which I've spent quite a lot of time um, in recently, has stood out for me in a number of ways, and I thought it would be really good uh, to bring this passage, or at least the first ten verses of it, uh, to us here this morning. Um, I don't know about you, but there's something that definitely stands out from this passage when you first read it, and that is Paul and how he is going about speaking to the Galatians. I don't think I would want to be the Galatians receiving this letter. They probably had sight of some of the other letters that had gone out to the other churches, and they've got this one. And Paul is angry. It's an unusual thing for Paul to be angry. He's getting very emotional about this, and he's very deliberately telling them that they're wrong. In fact, he curses them twice. If we read through the passage, if you later on read through the rest of Galatians 1 and into Galatians 2, read the whole of Galatians, it's a wonderful book, you will find that he is very much being serious with the people of Galatia. I am shocked, he says, the fact that you have been fooled, those who are twisting the truth, and as I say, he curses them twice. It's an interesting tone. An angry Paul. He's not pulling any punches. As we look at this, I want you to understand there are two things here being stressed by Paul right at the start of Galatians. The first thing is his authority. And the second, which we've already touched on briefly, is this gospel. The gospel according to Christ, or in this case, the gospel that's been given to Paul. And he is concerned that this gospel has been twisted. But let's look at the first point, the point where Paul is setting out clearly, as he puts it, that he is an apostle. And I'd like you to consider this as Paul being an apostle with a capital A. What do I mean by that? Well, apostle, very simply, means sent. It's a Greek word, um, and it means sent. So who is sending Paul? Well, Jesus is sending Paul. Now, Paul may have come across Jesus or in his time. He, in fact, persecuted the early Christians. But we all know Paul wasn't Paul originally. He was Saul. And he, on the road to Damascus, had this amazing experience that totally changed his life. He had to turn around and go completely in the other direction to that which he had been going before. He had met and had a revelation directly from Christ. That's why he says he is sent by God. This is why Paul is an apostle with a capital A. 
And he wants to make sure that people are aware, as we read through the whole of chapter 1, that he hasn't been influenced by the teaching of anyone else. In fact, if you continue reading, you'll find that he spent a whole three years in Arabia following his Damascus Road experience, preparing and sustaining, in a sustained amount of time, reflecting on what God has told him. He then spends just 15 days with Cephas. Three years on his own in Arabia with God, 15 days with Cephas. Now, why has he decided to come see Cephas? Very simply this. He wanted to seek the unity with the other apostles, and he wanted in a way to be accountable to them, but he wanted to know that what he had from God lined up with what, he, uh, with what they have from God. Had he got his message clear? Is it lining up what the other apostles? Can they be united to this? And yes, he could. So he was very much saying, I am apostle, I am sent by God, not by man. In fact, the Greek in verse 1, when he says, sent not with human commission, nor by human authority, it actually um, uses the Greek dia. The word by is the word dia. It's where we get our name or our word diameter, which is the measure through a circle. Dia is through. So he has been sent by God through the direct contact with Jesus Christ. He is an apostle with a capital A. And secondly, and more importantly for us this morning, and something I want to spend some time on uh, this morning, Paul was very keen to focus on the fact that this was God's plan. It was God's calling. It was God's action. It was God's work. In fact, the whole of chapter 1, it's almost autobiographical. Paul is given his testimony. And it's a great one because it's not all about Paul. It's all about God. All of his focus is on his heavenly father who he thoroughly entrusts his life to. So, Paul is bringing a gospel. And actually, in the very first five verses of this chapter, we have Paul's gospel, the gospel that he has received from Christ. It's his gospel, if you like, in a nutshell. And I just want to spend a few moments talking about that. The very first thing to understand is that it was a rescue plan. Verse 4, it says, Who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. We need to be rescued. That is point number one. How? He gave himself for our sins. It was, and Paul would have understood this, being a Jew, a substitutional sacrifice. Not a run-of-a-mill, everyday sacrifice, but a once-and-for-all sacrifice. We talked about it last week when we had Good Friday. He came to the cross. He was sacrificed for us. He was raised, as we looked at last week. And again, once, one of the clearest differences, and we touched on this last week, between the gospel of Jesus Christ and other teachings is the teaching bit. Yes, 
Jesus is and was a good teacher. But he was so much more than that. He himself is the rescuer. And we need to be rescued and not just given instructions. If you happen to be walking along, I don't know, the canals down at um, Saul Junction, for instance, always makes me a bit nervous because it's a very steep, you know, I've often got children with me. If they were to fall in and I needed to rescue them, what would I do? Throw them a ring or a book on how to swim? Yes, Jesus' teachings are good, but you've got to understand that Jesus isn't just the teacher. Jesus is the rescuer. So, it's a rescue plan. How did he do it? Well, he died for us. What did the Father do? Verse 1, he raised us. And verse 3, he gives us grace and peace as won by Christ for us. Grace and peace to you, he says in verse 3, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a plan. It's him doing it. It's from our Heavenly Father. Why did he do it? He did it out of grace. Grace is an important thing. Grace is a gift to us with nothing that we have done to deserve it. We didn't ask for it. There's nothing at all that we receive from it that we ever deserved. But it is what God already had planned for us. We don't deserve it. We can't take any credit for it. Only God can do it. And therefore, verse 5, only he can get the glory. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So there you have it. In a nutshell, from Paul, just five verses, the gospel. But this message is being perverted. It's being twisted. They are literally getting it the wrong way up, the wrong way round, upside down. Verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. We are called by grace. God calls us. We didn't call him. God accepts us and we follow him. It is grace unmerited. Note that it doesn't say give something to God for him to accept. There's nothing that we can give him. So Paul is concerned that they have lost in Galatia the gospel. And when you look at this, you've got to ask the question, where are we today in the world, in our nation, in our church, in our families, in ourselves? Have we lost the reality of the gospel Paul says that any teaching not based on these two things is bad teaching. One, we are too sinful to contribute to our own salvation. We need 
rescuing. Two, we are saved by a belief in Jesus' work, the grace of Christ, and we can add nothing else to it. We can't do anything to save ourselves. He does it, and we can't add a single thing. Got to thinking. I'd just like to give you three examples of things that happen in churches today, and I don't rule us out at all. But churches up and down this land, where they perhaps have lost touch with the reality of the gospel. And maybe this message in Galatians should be a bit of a wake-up call for our nation, a bit of a wake-up call for ourselves. And some of these things can be a little bit subtle. In fact, this first one, listen carefully to what I'm going to say, because you could easily misunderstand, and I don't want you to misunderstand. In some churches, it has been taught that you are saved through your surrender to Christ plus right beliefs and behavior. You hear phrases like, in fact, I can remember myself saying things like this, give your life to Jesus. Ask him into your life. Whilst they sound perfectly plausible and all right, there's a danger that this language can perhaps be given a message that if misunderstood can reject the whole principle of Christ's grace. People can end up thinking that they are saved by their own strong belief and trust and love of God. Not that this is wrong, but none of it is enough to rescue us. It's great to have a strong belief and a strong faith, but that doesn't rescue you. We can end up in a situation where people believe they are saved by their level of faith. More than that, their own salvation may need some sort of maintenance plan to stay saved. The gospel says that we are saved through grace. He does it, not us. He is our saviour, not us. Amen? Glad to see you're awake. Very quiet this morning. Secondly, so there's one example, very subtle. Sadly, in some churches today, it is taught that it doesn't really matter what you believe. So you, as long as you're a, a loving and a good person, it's what you might call a liberal church. They say that all good people, regardless of religion or not, will find God. They say there's perhaps other ways to finding God, not just through Jesus. In today's society, sadly, there are liberal churches which are becoming quite popular. They appear very attractive, supporting the belief in society that it's all about doing good. All-inclusive, accepting everybody. Diversity is good. These might be open-minded churches, yes, but here's the challenge. They can be intolerant to grace. It teaches that works are good enough to get to God. This in turn makes a mockery of what we looked at last week. Jesus' death, his sacrifice, and the fact that he was raised. 
if all you have to be is good, what about all the bad people? You see, the gospel is all-inclusive. It saves everybody, not by what they have done, but it doesn't matter how good you are or how bad you are, Jesus can still rescue you. It encourages people to be tolerant and open to please God. It suggests that they don't need grace, but they can get eternity for themselves. And here's the real test. Who gets the glory? Themselves? Or perhaps with Paul in verse 5, where the glory should go to. Then there are churches, the third example if you like, who become quite religious, become quite intolerant to small differences. This may be how you dress, or how you act, what we eat, what we wear, how we do things. Needless to say, this is nothing new. We read on into Galatians, you will see that their false teachers were imposing the old rules. This is how you have to meet Christ. You need to be circumcised. You need to do these rituals. You need to do eat this. Oh, don't eat that. Churches, and we're also in danger of going down this route if we don't watch it, become preoccupied with a set of rules or rituals or tradition. It becomes legalistic. And all of that just gets in the way of what is a simple and welcoming and open gospel of Jesus. So how do we measure our gospel? How do we test to know whether our gospel is a true gospel? Might feel that it's true. We might be told that it's true. We might think it's true. It might sound like it's true. But is it true? It's an important thing to get right. Remember Paul's language. Condemning all those who preach a false gospel in verse 8. Notice he includes himself in that. He says we. How do we know if anything's true? I mean, you go to the grocers and you ask for a to old money. A couple of pounds of apples. And he sells you the apples. How do you know it's true? How do you know you've got a couple of pounds of apple? You go to the petrol station and you put 80 litres, new money, into your car and they charge you goodness knows how much. How do we know it's true? Go down to the butchers and you buy some beef. How do we know it's beef? Well, here's the clue. We have to measure it against something we know is true. I used to work for a large pharmaceutical company. Measures were very important. We spent a lot of money on scales. And the scales would come with an engineer that would pop along at least every six months, and quite often it was demanded more often than that. And he would come with this box of special weights and thermometers and all sorts of wonderful things to make sure the scales were true. It was important that when various compounds were being measured, they had to be precise. 
happen to know that the same happens at your petrol stations. Be very grateful that there are government departments that come out and test these things, that we aren't being overcharged for our rather expensive fuel. If it's beef, apparently you need a DNA test. We have to measure it against something we know is true. So how do we know our gospel is true? We have to measure it against something we know is true. It's something that matters. It did for Paul, and it should for us. We need to watch that we don't start adding to the gospel. We need to watch that we don't start thinking it's how we do things that gains our salvation. We need to be like Paul, uncompromising. In verse 6 it says, he says, we would be abandoning the one who called you. If we don't get the basic understanding of our theology right, then it changes who you believe Jesus is. Verse 6 and 7, he talks about a different gospel that isn't the real gospel. Here's something to remember it by. Have you ever come across a vacuum? I've done years ago in various school labs, created a vacuum. We needed nothing in the vacuum flask that we were working on. We sucked everything out. Here's the interesting thing with a vacuum. If you add anything to it, it is no longer a vacuum. It's the same with the gospel. Add anything to it, it's no longer the gospel. A different gospel, Paul says, brings condemnation. So let's just check our two rules here. One. We are too sinful to contribute to our own salvation. We can't do it. He did it. It's his rescue plan, not ours. And we are saved by a belief in Jesus' work, the grace of Christ, and we can add absolutely nothing. Amen? Let's praise our Heavenly Father for a gospel that is true and saves us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray.